Welcome to the Cover Two Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover Two Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover Two Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover Two Resources. We now know genetics play an important role in determining whether someone will struggle with addiction in their lifetime. Yet genetics are almost universally ignored when it comes to treating addiction. I was recently introduced to a doctor who envisions the day when people no longer struggle with addiction. His name is Dr. Wetzman, and his process involves genetic testing. So today, we're going to hear about the importance of genetics in treating addiction. Dr. Wetzman graduated, summa cum laude, from Tulane University in New Orleans, and he received his medical degree from Louisiana State University. Dr. Wetzman has been active in treating addiction in facilities ranging from inpatient units to charity hospitals and their HIV clinic. He served as the chief medical officer for Townsend. Additionally, Dr. Westman is the author of Questions and Answers on Addiction. So, Doctor, welcome. Thank you, Greg. Great to have you here. So, Doctor, why are genetics so important in determining whether someone will struggle with addiction? About 10 to 20 percent of the population have the primary brain illness that we call addiction. Uh, we have been terrible at uh, treating it. We have terrible outcomes, and that's because we're using the wrong model. We don't understand it as a primary chronic disease. We understand it as a set of behaviors that start in a voluntary way. We're not going to get rid of addiction as a problem in American life in our lifetimes until we see it for the disease it is in nature and not the disease we want it to be. And what it is in nature is primary and a person's genetics uh, can explain at least in part why they might have that primary illness. So I think that most people believe 10% of the population are unlucky enough to get the addiction gene, I'll call it. What percentage of the population do you think are genetically predisposed to addiction, Dr. Wetzman? Uh, probably 10% or up to 15% genetically, but it's not going to be one gene. We're never going to find the addiction gene. Um, addiction is a complex uh, disorder that uh, will have many different genetic inputs. But that genetic prevalence of addiction isn't, isn't the total cost to society. Uh, somewhere between uh, that 10 and 20 percent um, are, are people who have addiction from other reasons besides genetics. So uh, having a good biological model of the disease and utilizing genetics uh, for people with that uh, with the genetic biology um, is going to help a great deal. Uh, but if we're going to really end addiction in our lifetime, we're going to have to uh, do some other preventive things that that aren't considered medical. 
So by having a good biological model, you're really talking about dopamine tone. And I think that that's central to your model of treating addiction. So can you explain what dopamine tone is and why it's so important? So there is a place in the brain uh, deep below the cortex, not a place we're, we're consciously aware of, not a place we uh, know that we're using on a daily basis. And it's the same in all mammals. Let's just call it the midbrain. It's right there in the middle. And it's the same in, in all mammals. The midbrain has been keeping mammals alive for over 100 million years. It's evolutionarily honed to a fine, fine degree to get us to attach to what is good for us. It's what makes us get in out of the rain. It's what makes us have sex to have babies. It, it's why we know to pick uh, good food instead of scraping slime off the bottom of a log in a forest. Um, it's how our brain interfaces with the world to know what's good for us and what's not good for us. It's how a squirrel remembers where he buried his nuts. If we didn't have this midbrain dopamine tone and spike, it's not just the tone, it's also the reward spike. If we didn't have this functionality, not only us, but no mammals would be able to get up in the morning. So it's critical. And if you don't have enough dopamine tone, there are a certain number of things that just don't go right. You're not going to remember things well. Uh, you're not going to be able to pay attention well. You're not going to be able to attach to others. You're not going to be able to feel reward from normally rewarding activities. So someone with normal dopamine tone can walk down the street and see an interestingly shaped building and look at the play of light on the windows and smell a falafel coming from a, a, a sidewalk stand and, and get joy out of all of that. And someone with not enough dopamine uh, will need something bigger than those normally dopamine-raising uh, activities, something like a drug or some other reward that, that pops the dopamine up to the, where a normal, people, a normal person might feel normal reward. So, but dopamine tone isn't just about topping off your tank, so to speak. Right. It's more about a combination of uh, production and then how long it sits on the receptors and then uptake. Right. So, there, so you have to um, think of it as a stream. And at the head of the stream, you're producing dopamine. And a little bit further down the stream, you're releasing that dopamine further downstream. And then once it's released, it can go to the receptors. And as long as it's on the receptors, it's creating tone. But there are enzymes in the area between the cells that are breaking it down and also a very strong vacuum cleaner called a reuptake pump, which is sucking it back in. So if the enzymes of the reuptake pump are working overtime, even with good release, you might not have good tone. So those three parts, no matter which part is less, tone will be less and you can increase tone by affecting any of the parts preferentially you'd want to increase tone by repairing the part that wasn't working right um, and that's why the genetics are so important because uh, if someone has low tone because they're not making enough and we just try to block the reuptake pump well there's not really enough dopamine there for reuptake pump blockade to work 
So if we're just going to guess at dopamine-raising treatments, we're not going to get very good results. So you use genetic testing for sequencing medical treatment for people with addiction and active symptoms. So could testing also be used for prevention? Uh, in some cases, yes. And I wouldn't want to test the whole population. Uh, I think medical, the history of medicine is replete with mistakes made when we try to extrapolate what works for a population with an illness to everybody. Uh, an example of this would be when MRIs first came out and people with uh, multiple sclerosis got MRIs and, and they had white spots in their brain. And so, uh, you know, everybody was taught, well, multiple sclerosis, you get white spots. And so if you see white spots, it's multiple sclerosis. And then MRIs got cheaper and more people had them for different reasons. And all these people without MS were getting uh, MRIs and had white spots. And they were told they had MS, but they didn't. And so you really want to take any test in medicine and limit it to the high-risk group. Because when you try to test the low-risk group, you get so many more false positives. And... Um, we could really – doctors are not safe. Doctors' medical care is, is dangerous. And you don't want to have normal people without an illness walking into a doctor's office to get their life changed because of a false test result. So I would uh, – I could use it in prevention. Uh, I hope we do one day use genetics in prevention. But um, I'd, I'd like to limit it to people with family history of addiction or people who at a young age are uh, – are showing behavioral signs of, of dopamine tone dysregulation. So I'd like to use it today to further our discussion about this, uh, this topic. So last week, the ACC lab sent me a test collection kit, which I completed and uh, returned so that they could run a test of my genetics. You have the results. So let's talk about that, doctor. Right. That was the, um, that, that's the test from, um, Addiction Labs of America, and that's the uh, the same test that um, we used at my old treatment center, Townsend, where I used to be, and they still use it. And so when you asked about it, I I, uh, I got them to do one for you. Um, so if we take this, uh, and remember, uh, I, we're gonna, I'm, I, I, this is not about you, Greg. This is. Assuming this were the, was the, this was the results of a patient in treatment, right? Because if somebody doesn't have a problem and just has genetic findings, I wouldn't do anything. If somebody has no symptoms and just has a test result, I wouldn't do anything. But if somebody uh, said, I have these symptoms and I have this illness and I need to decide what treatment to give, I would use the genetic testing results to pick the first thing to do as opposed to just grabbing one at random um, and uh, or or you know whatever the latest thing on TV was for the new treatment out there so going from top of the stream downstream the first thing is production if you don't make enough dopamine you can't release enough dopamine and uh, a good number of people have uh, a uh, polymorphism of a, a gene called MTHFR. Well, that's the abbreviation. It's actually uh, methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. But don't worry, there's no test. You don't have to remember that. 
And MTHFR, um, if you write it down and look at it, you could see what we call it when we're not on the radio. Um, it's a pretty big deal. So about 20 to 25 percent of the general population have some abnormality. When we tested the people who came to treatment uh, at Townsend, 80 percent had uh, an abnormality worthy of treatment of for MTHFR um, abnormality. So that's a pretty concentrating effect. I mean, if you get, you know, a, a population seeking treatment for addiction at 80% and the general population 20, 25%, that's a, that's a pretty big uh, determinant. So um, we found it pretty important uh, to, to give people um, the, the, um, the result of that enzyme. So that enzyme doesn't work well. It doesn't turn folate in your diet into L-methylfolate, which is the only kind of folate your brain can use to make dopamine. But if we give people L-methylfolate just in an oral pill, it's just like taking a vitamin. It's just another form of folate because folic acid from the drugstore doesn't work because you can't turn it into L-methylfolate. So you have to take L-methylfolate. And uh, you could see, not in everybody, but in some people, some really remarkable uh, results. And so that's where we would start. And the, the test result you sent uh, showed 65% of function, and generally we anything less than 80% we tried treating with L-methylfolate uh, to see if it did any good. Our brain uses L-methylfolate to make dopamine. I read that almost half of all people have genetic variations that reduce their ability to convert folate to its usable form, L-methylfolate. For this population, an L-methylfolate supplement can be very effective in helping raise dopamine tone. In my case, I have 65% of the normal MTHFR activity, so this certainly gave me something to consider for my family history. Some companies put it out as a prescription medical food, and some companies have a non-prescription medical food where you just have to say you're in a doctor's care and here's your doctor's number and, and order it. But... Um, yeah, patients can just go get it themselves. So what's next up? Next up, we had the nicotine receptor. Why is that important, doctor? So the dopamine in the midbrain is released from a group of cells called the ventral tegmental area. And there are a number of different things which can make the ventral tegmental area release dopamine. Uh, one of them is uh, activity at the nicotine receptor. And another is the activity at the opioid receptor. And just like buprenorphine is a partial agonist at the opioid receptor and can help us increase tonic release of dopamine in people with an abnormality there, uh, verinicline or Chantix is a partial agonist at the nicotine receptor and can help us uh, create tonic, increase tonic release of dopamine for people with that uh, or the abnormality of that receptor. There's also some suggestion in the literature that these two receptors may actually be right next to each other physically and interact. Um, and we have seen some people who were opioid dependent who we were able to uh, get off of, um, like we initially treat with buprenorphine for withdrawal and then when they wanted to come off of buprenorphine and couldn't because when they got off that last milligram, all their symptoms of addiction came back. When we 
we have some cases where we'd put them on um, varenicline and they came right off of the buprenorphine without a problem. So um, in patients who have low dopamine release uh, and polymorphism of that nicotine receptor, that's where I would go first. So the next one up on my report was the DA receptor. Why is that yes. important? So, so the, dip, the dopamine receptor is, um, you know, one of the things about the model, I got to back up for a second. One of the things about the model is that it's simple. But nature is, is never just simple. It's simple and complex at the same time. So the dopa, dopamine receptors have five subtypes. We're only talking about the dopamine 2 subtype. And so you'd think, well, that's pretty clear. You're trying to get tone at the dopamine 2 receptor, and that's where the signal gets through. But actually, there's a lot of argument about dopamine 2 receptor. And some people say it turns off dopamine, and some people say it is the dopamine tone signal. And it turns out it's really both. The dopamine 2 receptor exists in two forms, long and short. And this polymorphism that uh, you sent to me um, is a what's called a splice variant where uh, the protein actually gets spliced differently depending on uh, the genetics. And so someone with this polymorphism has a, a higher likelihood of having more short form of the dopamine 2 receptor than long form. And uh, I'm sorry, did I say more short? Actually, yes. less short. Yeah, I'm sorry, less short than long. And um, what that means is that they may actually have a higher spike. So you may remember earlier I said it's not just about tone, it's about spike. Yes. There's a, a bit of a complex interaction between tone and spike. So if we just lowered someone's tone, their spike would go up to compensate. Um, and when we see patients coming in with low tone and we raise their tone, generally their spike comes down automatically. When someone has this uh, polymorphism, we go slower or we uh, look for signs of a high spike in them. And if we are worried about raising their dopamine tone, we will modulate their spike with uh, a GABA B agonist. GABA B is a sort of an inhibitory um, receptor. Um, and we would use a lot of the anti-epileptic medications for this. And uh, because when we don't take this precaution and we were to put somebody like this on, uh, on uh, Chantix or something, sometimes we'd raise their tone instead of their spike coming down because it didn't need to be high anymore. It would stay high and they'd actually get triggered more. And uh, we never want to do that to somebody. So this, uh, this result would be important uh, for that reason. It's probably a good point to add that this is not – these are not the kind of results that, that, you know, you should just get in the mail or get on the Internet. This is, these are real medical tests that, that need a real experienced uh, clinician to help a patient uh, navigate through. So comment on the role, though, that this could play potentially in prevention. Sure. Um, like, like I said before, there are two two ways to get addiction genetically. You can be born with it or you can, you can get it. Um, everybody thinks that, you know, you just caused by drugs, but actually that's very small number of, 
uh, a very small minority of cases of addiction are are caused in normal people who just take drugs enough to break their midbrain and and now have addiction. Um, but there are some social reasons to get addiction. There are, there are stressors in, in the world that lower your dopamine tone, particularly isolation, physical isolation, and feeling less than. Uh, so other than that, though, we're looking at the genetics. Now, I, I know uh, somebody who uh, is in longstanding recovery who is um, a homozygote at the MTHFR uh, polymorphism you showed me. And uh, so his, his function is 23%, not 65%. And uh, he has addiction and um, has uh, uh, gotten into recovery. And it wasn't until he was in longstanding recovery that he found out about this. And he started taking L-methylfolate and his, uh, his recovery uh, was much more enjoyable. I mean, it's not that he couldn't recover. It's not that he couldn't stop using um, uh, it's not that he couldn't work the steps, but but he has a lot more energy in recovery than he did before. Um, so he he said to me, um, you know, I don't regret anything that happened in my life, but I wonder how my life would have been different if somebody had tested me when I was five and given me L-methylfolate. Would my first cigarette have lit my brain up? And... Uh, I think that's that's the power of of this. That um, what we don't understand in our in our society is that people with addiction don't just like drugs. People with addiction don't feel right, and when they take something that suddenly normalizes dopamine, they are biologically attached. I mean, the part of the that midbrain is about attachment, and so this isn't a choice; it's an attachment, and um, most people, you know, try getting a non-smoker to smoke. It's not going to work. They don't want to because it's not pleasurable. But for, for a smoker, it's great pleasure. And, and you take a, a, a guy with normal dopamine tone and you, uh, or even a little high dopamine tone when he's a kid, and you give him a cigarette and he feels like he's going to crawl out of his skin and he's terribly anxious and he hates this and he'll never talk to you again because you gave him a cigarette. You give the cigarette to, the, to another kid with low dopamine tone and all of a sudden the world's in color and uh, the birds are chirping and he's happy being where he is for the first time in his life and uh, he's asking where's the pack and where can he get more. Doctor, how many years have you been using this biological model for treatment? And also, can you speak to the efficacy of the program? Yeah, so um, – the, the model as it stands right now was uh, probably dates to um, – it, it developed over 2004, 2005, um, and uh, uh, it hasn't changed appreciably uh, since then. The, the, the genetics were added um, to understand um, some of the targets of, of uh, genetics, but uh, – model is pretty much the same as it was. It's a simple three-part, three-moving-part working model uh, that I described in the book, and, uh, and the book's 10 years old now. Um, we built the, the treatment center, um, the treatment company, which uh, was outpatient-focused. We, we built that not for the 16% of people with addiction that everyone else in the field is arguing about. We built it for the 84% that n nobody uh, is trying to market. 
And uh, so we got people into treatment who no one else would have gotten into treatment. So I'm not sure if the efficacy is translatable because I think what we would have uh, what we would hear is, well, you were treating all these easy early cases and, uh, you know, you weren't treating the really sick ones. Well, we did get a lot of sick ones. And because we were outpatient focused, we we treated a lot of people that other people would never have treated as an outpatient, uh, doing uh, outpatient withdrawal management for both opioids and alcohol at the same time or opioids and benzos at the same time. We treated a lot of people who would have uh, gotten um inpatient uh, treatment or re- long-term residential treatment. And, you know, we, we were doing just as well as, as anyone else in the field. The thing about the genetics was our doctors said that um, even with the model, in about a third of the cases, a detailed biological history of symptoms before and after uh, drugs started really didn't tell them what to do medically. That a third of the time, they needed the genetic test to tell them what to do. And so um, we thought it was important to invest in after we tested it uh, a couple of times. And, uh, and, and we spent an awful lot of money um, giving away genetic tests to people to get enough, uh, enough people through to, to develop an algorithm. So, Dr. Wetzman, what closing thoughts would uh, you have on the importance of genetics in fighting the opioid epidemic? Well, let me – Can I, I'm going to uh, take the answerer's prerogative and skip on a tangent to that because I think what's more important than the opioid epidemic is that we understand that the last two opioid epidemics were part of an endemic problem with a brain disease called addiction and so is this one. And all the amphetamine and benzos and cannabis and alcohol epidemics we had in between those three opioid epidemics were also just an expression of the same endemic problem we have in this country with addiction. And it's not going to go away when we solve the opioid epidemic, just like it didn't go away when we solved the last two. We need to change the focus of our of our uh, conversation in this country not about treating drug-based syndromes that we call addictions, but on treating the primary biological brain illness that we call addiction. That is the same illness whether you put down alcohol and pick up Twinkies or shooting heroin or gambling or sex, and it doesn't matter. It's the same disease whether you're using a drug or using a behavior or just feel miserable and you're not using anything. So I, I hope that genetics are used to point out the commonalities of people with addiction so we can get away from this drug-based view, this behavior-based view of the illness and, and get to something that occurs in nature so we actually have a chance to treat it well, prevent it, and end it as a problem in American life within my lifetime. Well, once again, doctor, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. We've been talking with Dr. Howard Wetzman, who uses genetic testing as a starting point for treating addiction. While there's no simple score or surefire method to predict addiction risk, Dr. Wetzman identified an enzyme in my genetics that may be an indicator of the risk of addiction in my family. And while this may not be a surefire predictor of risk in the family, I'm curious to learn more. Please join me next time as I interview Jeff Johnson, CEO of the ACC Laboratory Division of the American Addiction Center.
who uses genetic testing in their addiction treatment program. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.